0: Hello and welcome to the Southern Tour podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Chatwin, and today we're joined by Lawrence C. Reardon to discuss his new book on the origins of China's development strategy, A Third Way. Professor Reardon, who goes by Chris, was a Committee for Scholarly Communications with the People's Republic of China Fellow at Peking University from 1984 to 1988, and a foreign expert teaching economics at Shenzhen University from 1986 to 88. Currently, he is an associate professor of political science, coordinator of Asian studies at the University of New Hampshire, as well as an associate in research at Harvard University's Fairbank Centre for East Asian Research. Chris has published several monographs on Chinese foreign economic policy, including A Third Way, the book we'll be discussing today, and The Reluctant Dragon, The Impact of Crisis Cycles on Chinese Foreign Economic Policy from 2002 he also writes on religion in china and co-edited the vatican and the nation state in comparative perspective chris welcome to the podcast
1: good morning how are you doing
0: yeah great uh, thanks for thanks for joining me today i really enjoyed uh, your book which i read recently and i wondered perhaps if we could start with with the title which has sort of certain resonances for for me as a a British person who lived through the Tony Blair era and perhaps for uh, American listeners uh, who remember Bill Clinton, and they had a, a, a political third way, which is, is not the same as the one that the, the title of your book is drawn from. So perhaps you could just start by telling us why you chose that title and, and, and what its resonances are for the, for the Chinese economy.
1: Well, it's interesting that you should bring up Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, because when I chose this topic... And that chose the title, I realized that I wasn't looking at their attempts to meld leftist social policies with rightist economic policies. Mm-hmm. I was really looking at three different ways of China's development. So uh, uh, this misunderstanding, that's why I it's good to put this forward at the very beginning of this talk, because when I gave this talk the last time in 2016 in Shanghai, They disagree with me. They basically thought I was talking about the third way. And I said, No, I'm talking about a third way. Mm. So I think uh, the best way to come to understand all of this is to look at Chinese elites trying to pursue the long term interest of their state, they want to build a strong national defense. They all want to promote, they all wanted to promote a self-sufficient economy and they wanted to guarantee the hegemonic control of the state, the economy, and the people, but they disagreed about the strategy to achieve these long-term goals, which resulted in a cycling of two variations of Stalinist economic development from the 50s to 70s. So Mao Zedong, I argue, promoted the first way based on his short course of the history of of all russian communist party this is a book stalin promoted wrote in the early uh, 1920s 30s and this approach utilized ideology and mobilization techniques characteristics of this revolutionary stalinism it was a radical socialist transformation of agriculture and industry used totalitarian tactics And the normative approach to mobilize the masses is their sense of nationalism communism. It resulted in the great leap forward with 30 to 50 million people starving to death. The third front that put everybody into a wartime stance moved the investments from the coastal areas including Guangdong to the interior and then and the Cultural Revolution. That was the first way. The second way was one that was promoted by Zhou Enlai, Chen Yun, and eventually Chen Yun, I mean Deng Xiaoping. And this was a bureaucratic Stalinist model that when Stalin discovered that this more revolutionary approach did not work, after 1934, he would promote a more command economy, a planned economy, uh, approach, and you see it in the book that he that he promoted both in China and in the Eastern European economies called The Economic Problems of Socialism of the, of the USSR. And essentially the Chinese bureaucrats adopted this, uh, especially Zhou Enlai and Chen Yun, and they tried to organize key state economic sectors to allow a limp, but, uh, but they also allowed a limited role of the market These resulted in the famous concept of the four modernizations, which came out before the Cultural Revolution in the 1970s. You had the 4-3 plan, and then Hua Guofeng would come up with the new 10-year plan. Now, these two approaches, these are two different concepts. And both Mao and and Zhou Enlai, they had this basic disagreement about how to achieve these long-term goals of the state one through a more radical approach and one through more uh, a bureaucratic approach. By the late 1970s, there was a recognition that neither of these approaches were working, Mm -hmm. that the expansion of the, Mao had died, so the radical approach basically had been uh, pushed to the side, but the new great leap forward was too expensive. So it led to a gradual evolution of a third way, starting in 1977 with Hua Fong and his experimentation with the foreign investment, that you begin seeing a new approach. I call it the international Leninist approach. Mm. And it was this financing crisis of the late 1970s that had forced the elites to question the, the, this idea of self-reliance. And they began to experiment with Lenin's state capitalism com- concept and replace this older Chinese Stalinist economic paradigm with with more of a market-based paradigm. Now, there was not a sudden adoption of this approach. Sometimes uh, people say about the third plenum in 1978 that Mm -hmm. everything changed. No, it was a far more circuitous learning process that was uh, characterized by disagreements and compromises, between Deng Xiaoping and his his underling, Zhao Ziyang, and the Chen Yun, who was a proponent of the older bureaucratic Stalinist approach. But eventually, this new international Stalinism would transform China from an inward-oriented to an outward-oriented development strategy. So th- when I'm talking about a third way, I'm talking about a... the evolution of a development strategy from inward-oriented that focused on either complete autarky, semi, you know, that basically trying to restrict all imports, to import substitution, which, which would import the technology from abroad, but eventually China would be able to stand on its own two feet and wouldn't have to deal with the outside world that inward way of thinking which was not character just characteristic of china there are lots of many countries in latin america shared a similar viewpoints but and so did taiwan and korea for a period and so did japan but these many of these countries especially in east asia emerged Mm -hmm. from their inward oriented views to embrace the out the the international economy which they began to realize as a dynamo of for domestic development and that's what the the, the the it took the chinese 30 years to embrace the international economy to follow this more this east asian model that they they meshed with Len, uh, this international leninism And helped to produce the Chinese state that we have today. And but just one other, and this is why it's important to say that it was international Leninism, that they're not talking. They're talking about a change in self-reliance in this basic long-term goal. They're not talking about a change of the role of the party and the hegemony of the party to that they maintain and strengthen, they adapt to the changing situation, but the party remains key in society and in politics.
0: I think it's interesting as a way of framing the debates, the sort of pre 78 debates, and I think a lot of the a lot of listeners will be familiar with sort of Mao's political ideological approach uh, perhaps the bit between mao's death in september of 1976 and the third plenum at the end of 1978 is a little bit more hazy in people's minds and question of huang's role in starting to um, shift the focus of the chinese economy i think it's really interesting and you you reference the this the new great leap forward which he he was sort of pioneering in this in this Two-year period, perhaps you could just talk a little bit about Hua Guofeng's role in all of this, because he's often dismissed as a sort of placeholder, a bit of a, you know, his his authority just derived from from Mao and obviously tarnished by the by the legacy of saying you know he was going to follow whatever whatever Mao thought, the two whatevers. But I think that's a bit of a crude representation of his of his role. So could you just talk about what his economic plan was in in that period?
1: I completely agree with you. And it, I also have to say that this new approach to appreciating Hua Guofeng's role in opening China is something that was that Fred Tevis and Warren Sun in Australia really have been promoting over the years and some amazing research. And when I, was, when I wrote the first book, I really did not emphasize enough Hua's innovative policies during that 77 78 period when he was both the, the, the new chairman mm. and in part because I, I i think i was influenced i think many people were influenced by the 1980s and the interpretation that hua Guofeng was a uh, what was not smart enough mm. to open up china and that it took dung to do this well there's a degree of truth there but then you need to look further and i think there's a degree to which in the 1980s they were trying to justify mm. hua being uh, pushed aside he wasn't he wasn't deposed he was he just had to step down his policies however re, uh, some of his policies remain now what's the problem first off you have to understand that hua guofeng was not pursuing mao zedong's revolutionary stalinist approach of semi autarchism he completely uh, discards it. He embraces Zhou Enlai and Chun's approach to economic development, and that's import substitution industrialization. They had imported the uh, Soviet technology in the 1950s. They imported Japanese and Western European technology in the 1960s and in the 1970s. And Hua Guofeng wants to be wants to take these types of strategies and expand them to to import 80 uh, to 18 billion dollars worth of new technology turnkey plants this is how you're going to build china now the problem with this of course was that china did not have the money to pay for this Deng Xiaoping, who was regained power in 1977, was all for this. And in fact, Ezra Vogel quotes Deng as saying that, well, it shouldn't be 18 billion, it should be $80 billion <laughs> worth of new technology. Who controlled all this was Chen in the late 1970s, who basically read to Deng the riot act and he said, this, is, this system is not going to work. So that's why you see that strategy, this new Great Leap Forward, is, is readjusted. It is They completely forget about this new 10-year plan. What they don't forget about were the strategies that Hua adopted to finance the plan. Now, there's a mixture of uh, both old strategies and new strategies. The old strategies had been adopted in the early 1960s to pay for Uh, uh, foreign technology, uh, all types of loan programs, all types of uh, investment uh, plans to uh, encourage the uh, the export, uh, export production. In addition to those older systems, including export processing zones, the promoted various types of foreign investment and compensation trade and not necessarily 100% foreign owned investment, but at least joint ventures, mm-hmm. the initial joint ventures. These are all started under Hua Feng. Now, Deng Xiaoping is always seen as being the man who uh, introduced foreign um, investment into China. And you really need to take a look at this and say, no, it mm-hmm. started in the 1970s before Deng with Huaguo
0: and somebody else who your book foregrounds in this story, as you say, often the narrative gets simplified, and and Deng Xiaoping is is held up not just you know in, in both China and the rest of the world as a sort of sole architect of the, the, the success of the nineteen eighties, but uh, these accounts often overlook uh, the role of Zhao Ziyang, who obviously was purged from the party after the after June 1989, and your book brings focus back to to him. And that, I suppose, is the, the main focus of your book, the the period from um, 1979 through the 80s, where gradually with the beginning of the four SEZs in, in Guangdong and Fujian, and then in 1984, the expansion of the kind of coastal development strategy. And Zhao Ziang was absolutely central to that, wasn't he?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I... When you take a look at Zhao Ziyang, when you look at any of these leaders, you have to look at their background. Where did they come from? Why did they think the way they did? And for Zhao Ziyang, I believe he is the architect of China's opening. Deng guaranteed. He was the preeminent leader that made sure that this opening strategy would occur, but it was Zhao Ziyang who was the architect and a primary component of this new third way, this international Leninist approach to development. And he gained this role at learning on the ground in Guangdong as the party secretary in the 1950s and 60s, where he he went from everything from the land reform campaigns, he saw the devastation of the Great Leap Forward, but he also resurrected private markets in the early 1960s. he In, in the 19th, mid-1970s, he was the one who was at the forefront of Sichuan's agricultural decentralization experiments. So Zhao had learned during his time, both in Guangdong and Sichuan, the power of the marketplace. He learned also in Guangdong the power of overseas Chinese capital there was something called Overseas Chinese Investment Enterprises that would be allowed to, to develop in, in Guangdong in the 1950s. It's the first form of, if you want to call this as foreign direct investment, but overseas Chinese were allowed to come back to China to invest in their home counties, their hometowns. Mm-hmm. It was Zhao Ziyang who would oversee the opening of the first China Export Commodity Trade Fair, the Guangdong uh, Guangzhou Trade Fair. In spring of '57, he had to deal with all the economic migrants who were trying to escape Hong Kong to Hong Kong in the 1950s and 60s, and so he uh, understood Guangdong. He understood the Cantonese people. He understood the power of the Hong Kong, Taiwan overseas Chinese investors, who would who they could tap to build. China as a, as a modern powerhouse. He also had traveled abroad. He, was, he accompanied Hua Guofeng to Western Europe in, the 1970, in 1979. And it, it, he was amazed at the prosperity of the European farmers. And he was amazed at the way that Yugoslavia exported goods to the Western world. And he realized that China's self-reliant strategy was not, had limitations, and that, that international trade was a possibility for a socialist economy. Now, he, it's interesting because that Zhao had a very strong relationship with Deng Xiaoping, who, who now Deng was not an economist. As I said, Deng kept on, when he heard about the New Great Leap Forward, he was he wanted to just expand it four times. Deng's, uh, in many ways, is very similar to Mao, Remember, he was Mao's secondhand secondhand man. He was helped to guide the Great Leap Forward in the late 1950s. This is another part of history that's conveniently forgotten. And when Mao was talking about promoting Rash advance, Dung was right there promoting along with him. Well, in the 1970s and 80s, you see the same desire to promote Rash advance. And, uh, and Deng's extreme economic views sometimes were, were balanced by Chen Yun and this more bureaucratic Stalinist approach, and Zhao Ziyang play, was playing as a balancer between these two views. He appreciated Chen Yun's understanding of the economy and his desire to, to control growth and to curb Deng Xiaoping's enthusiasm. But in the end, Zhao Ziyang would be able to convince Deng Xiaoping that China could become an advanced industrialized country by embracing the international uh, economy. And that's why Zhao Ziyang would become the the primary proponent of the coastal development strategy, which, It was Zhao Ziyang in early 1981 who called a conference of various leaders from Beijing down to Guangxi who met in in Beijing to talk about the expansion of foreign trade rights, of international trade capabilities for these various coastal areas. And if it wasn't for Chun Yun's criticism and an emergent and the problems that had occurred in Shenzhen, it's very possible that China would have expanded into China uh, Chinese leaders would have allowed these, the, the coastal areas to become more involved in the international economy as early in the 1980s. But that would take time. And when Zhao realized, that he was not getting support from Chen Yun, that Chen Yun had ruled the day that these mistakes that had occurred in Shenzhen, the importation of cars, involvement of the involvement of the People's Liberation Army and the and the party, importing television sets and, and radios and so forth illegally into the into the country using the special economic zones, Zhao was like, all right, we can Push to the side the coastal development strategy, will will revisit the problems of the zones, will fix these, these gaps. That's when they erect the the fence that would surround the zone to prevent the this, it staunches the blood of China's. This one, the criticism that that the, the zones were siphoning the China's blood, and this fence would prevent that from occurring. But Zhao Ziyang held his peace. He did what Chen Yun wanted. He did what Deng Xiaoping wanted. And by 1984, he once again is able to push for coastal development. And he and he once again brings together, convinces Deng Xiaoping that this is the way forward for China's development. And that's when, after 1984, you begin having the opening of the, of the coastal areas of from Dalian in the north to Beihai in the south.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if we could just perhaps zoom in on on 1984 as a as a as a pivotal year in this process. Some listeners will be familiar with the the famous song story of the story of Spring from the 1990s, a sort of anthem of reform and opening. And and the original lyrics to that commemorates three pivotal years: 1979, 1984, and then 1992. And we'll talk more about 1992. In a little while but 1984 was a hugely significant year as you already alluded to and partly because in the well the what I would say the winter of that year but in the mythology is the spring Deng Xiaoping goes on his first southern tour Uh, and then later on and I I thought this was an interesting um, point to ask for your reflections on it the first of October they have a military parade which had been postponed actually from from the 79 when it would normally have happened on the 10-year anniversary and that's a kind of key moment and you were you were there weren't you Chris?
1: Yes I was (laughs) it was one of the things I'll never forget.
0: Yeah I can imagine so could you tell us maybe a little bit about your experience of this well I mean being there in the midst of it and I know obviously Deng Xiaoping's there a lot of the floats that passed down are kind of commemorating the success of of places like Shenzhen what were your impressions of of being on the ground there?
1: Well, this was, I arrived in Beijing in September of 1984, which uh, coincided with the uh, 35th anniversary of the uh, establishment of the People's Republic of China. And it was, there was various things that were going on at the same time. You've got the discussions that were going on with about Hong Kong. You have a, a, so so internationally there was a feeling that China was regaining its control over, over a the British colony that had you know, that China had been had been stolen from the Chinese. Mm. But you also but I think in, in many ways, perhaps more importantly, there had been this fear from essentially 1982 to 1984 that the reforms that Deng had promoted and all these leaders had promoted were being under attack and that with the the problems that occurred in Shenzhen and other places in 1981-82, there had been this retrenchment of policy. There had been a Hu Chao Mu, a call for a nationwide campaign against the southern Chinese bourgeoisie that he said was threatening China's socialist spiritualization. <laughs> and so in 83, you had the anti-spiritual pollution campaign. And I remember when I was applying to go to China, I was, I was talking with my advisors, and, and they'd agree that I needed to get there in 1984, because we did not know where they're going to close up again. Well, the 1984, this is coincides exactly when Deng Xiaoping goes down for the, for his first Southern visit. And that's, that's why I think it's important to understand this is the first Southern visit. And just like the second one, he is, he is not just reviving, but he's bringing legitimacy to this experiment that had been under attack by the moderate Stalinists, not necessarily, you know, definitely the, the radical Stalinists, but but even the moderate Stalinists did not like the uncontrolled nature of uh, the market. They wanted to keep that market in a cage. However, Deng Xiaoping, when he arrives and he, it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval. This is something here in the United States that we, that you say that to legitimize a a brand, Shenzhen, and the SEZs, and and remember, this is also not just the SEZs. It's a decentralization experiment for all of Guangdong and Fujian. Mm. It's so it's not just you know we talk about about in that early period, of opening up the special economic zones, I don't think enough people realize that concurrent with, with this was decentralizing policies, allowing the Guangdong government and the Fujian provincial governments to take greater control of their economies, to, to retain a lot more of their profits and to be able to direct their, that money to developing their own infrastructure. And of course, when China didn't have any money, this was great, and Guangdong was able to retain a lot of their goods. With Fujian, the central government still had to pay pay some money because of Fujian, is a much poorer province. But that 84 visit justifies what's going on. So by the time that Deng Xiaoping is reviewing not just the military troops, but all the citizens of Beijing seemed to be marching along Tiananmen Square, uh, uh, along Jie, And uh, the, this was the first time, not the first time I've been there, but it was the first time I've ever been near the square with, where millions of people were there. Of course, mm-hmm. the last, you know, the, all I had with envisions in visions my mind was a cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. And if you took a really close look, you could still see numbers of where people read, uh, painted and paint, where people were told to stand. <laughs> Uh, in the square, whether that was from Cultural Revolution or previous to that, I don't know. But the idea was that the people were not there raving their little red books saying uh, Mao, 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 Joe, Xi, Wan Sui, long live Chairman Mao. They were there cheering Deng Xiaoping. But more importantly, they were cheering the end of the old approach, mm-hmm. the end of the old China and of the beginning of a new China. And I always thought that, yes, you're impressed with all the, the, the huge icy, the, the, the medium range ballistic missiles and all types of things that and the, the armed police that come marching by and, and doing their goose steps. Yes, impressive. I thought the most impressive form of event was this float coming from the Shokho industrial zone. Now, Shoko is a small area. It was really basically the first, the export processing zones that was set up because it was under the China Merchant Steamship Navigation Company, the Ministry of Commerce. They were looking for a place that, that based in Hong Kong, they were looking for a place to expand. So they go across Hohai Bay in, in, in just north of Hong Kong in the Shenzhen area. And they set up this very small enclave called Shoko that they did all types of far more aggressive experimentation with management techniques, essentially adopting management techniques from Hong Kong and applying them to mainland China in this very small area. And this area grew because they were able to tap Hong Kong finances to build up this this small zone. My university, I was teaching at Shenzhen University, which was just a little bit north of here. And in between, there was absolutely nothing. It was just sand, and, and five years before, there were dead bodies along the beach, Hohai mm-hmm. Bay, that they had to clean up. Well, Shoko had not only expanded, but this, their, uh, their slogan was, time is money, efficiency is life. And here on this, on this float was emblazoned this slogan. And you had all these young people that were running around and running around they were having the best time i mean it wasn't the goose stepping military Mm. soldiers and the precision it was just exuberance Mm. and that in my mind and all the time that i was there in china and when i've gone back that feeling of being liberated from this old way of thinking from the the catastrophe of the Great Leap Forward, of the amazing stupidity of the Cultural Revolution, uh, which people remembered when they started hearing the slogans of the anti-spiritual pollution campaign, mm-hmm. then to be able to to see this symbol. And it was being broadcast all throughout China and to see that, that that efficiency is life. And that's when you start hearing, you know, Shenzhen became a symbol of all of China, of, you know, the buildings that were each level was built, it would take a, a day and a half or two days mm. to to build a, a certain level, which of course there might be some questions these days about the uh, whether or not they they've turned into these Dofu uh, buildings. Mm. But at that time, it was that... It was glorious to make money, mm. and it was because it would it would empower China. So that's you know in 1984, I, I think, and, and not just this the 35th anniversary, but that entire year is a really a seminal period because it's also when the when Deng Xiaoping and Zhao Ziyang meet with these the provincial leaders, and they allow the 14 coastal cities to establish their own uh, type of of zone. Now they're not special economic zones; they're something called economic and te- technical development zones. And each one had to come up with their own financing. Each one would would approach foreign investors. Different countries in the north, they would go to Korea or Japan. In the south, they would look toward Taiwan and uh, other places for for financing. There some Progress faster than others, you know, not how many people wanted to, uh, to invest in high but that doesn't matter. It was the idea that they were given these powers. And on top of this, there were other laws, uh, uh, other initiatives to begin to break down the economic divisions between provinces. And they established these larger Pearl River Changjiang, uh, Yangtze River basins, Pearl Delta regions, Minnan area, Hmm. where they the idea was that these all these areas would begin to cooperate with one another, and that's why your discussion about Dongguan and talking about how it became incorporated Hmm. in eighty five. This is part of that movement, and that you begin to see the the Chinese previous to that time. They were all little islands. They were all self-sufficient. Each province was supposed to produce their own goods. Starting in the 1980s, those uh, uh, when I was in Beijing in '84, I all I was eating was uh, tofu, was garlic shoots. That was the best thing we could get, and tofu. By the by, 1985, all of a sudden we were able to get vegetables from the south. And these this is the part of China's development that I don't think people who did not live in this transition period, they don't appreciate that degree of change, the impact it had on the people, and their vision of what China could be. And that's why, of course, you you, you start seeing this emergence of, of the coastal economy, the idea being that the coastal economy, and this is Zhao's theory of uh, coastal development, that would be more integrated with the, in, with the international economy. That could, could, could compete, just like the, it had happened in South Korea and in Taiwan. The interior economy, slower, gonna protect them, still go through import substitution, use planned strategies there. But at, during this transition period, they would be protected while the coastal area would have to compete. So you see 84 is this transition time where they the, the successes of the zones were led to the expansion of these of these experiments. And then eventually they they apply to join the, the general agreement on Tariff Street, at least as, as an observer. They open up Hainan Island and which becomes a separate province and a and a special economic zone. And, and then following Zhao Ziyang's downfall in 1989, then you had the opening of Pudong and Shanghai and the interior. So 84, to me, is where the Deng Xiaoping's is able to give his imprinture, his chop, approves the opening of the rest of the economy. And it's Deng's, I mean, Zhao Ziyang's blueprint that they're following,
0: and it's interesting. I, I think in accounts of that 1984 trip that Deng makes to the south, that it is. I mean, obviously they're, they're termed inspection tours, and these days when you know Xi Jinping goes off to Guangdong, they're you know incredibly choreographed events. And I don't think she's doing a lot of inspecting. But there was this sense that when Deng went to, particularly Shenzhen, that he that he had. A kind of a moment um, of epiphany to some extent I think he says something like you know now I've now I've seen this then I now I understand and he sees the International Trade Center which is you know the, by mm. far and away the tallest skyscraper in Shenzhen the, the, the biggest skyscraper in China at that time and so there is this kind of sense that it's it's a moment where he realizes um, and understands the potential of this this idea I guess what's interesting I mean I, I, I think we'll we'll skip forward a little bit and and perhaps talk about the the 92 southern tour in a second but obviously that that intervening period between 84 and and then the protests of 89 it's not it's not that that there's a sort of smooth economic waters (laughs) there either right i mean sort of the 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 Inflation, the, the, dual, the dual price system and the inflation becomes a, a problem. Corruption is, is still a problem. So these, some of these issues that existed pre-94 uh, still exist and there are some new ones thrown into the mix as well.
1: Absolutely. And, and also I think, so you start having both economic and political problems that mm-hmm. arise between the 84 and 89 period, as you mentioned, and not surprising that this investments these investments fuel inflation and that you know, i remember when i was uh, at peking university that in the economics department and we went traveling to xinjiang we went traveling uh, to xinjiang and when they would discuss prices and differences between provinces the the discussion would inevitably talk about the price of watermelon in various provinces and various areas. And people would say, well, here it was a five, five uh, mile and here it was seven mile. And uh, but that situation began to change in 84, 85, where you started having great infusions of money in these coastal areas. And uh, so inflation grew. And the uh, then, of course, the question about how far they should Evolve, and uh, I was in discussions in Guangzhou, in at the research institute I was at about exactly how many people should be able to join a Chinese company. Now we're not talking; we're talking about a private company, and so they were, as as uh, Chen Yun would say, back in the early. Eighties about going along, fording the stream and feeling the, the stones. This is what was happening in eighty six. They were trying to figure out what is was the best way to expand the decentralization to empower local industries, and to and the idea being that gradually you would the, the state owned enterprises would begin to take a, a secondary role. Of course, that did not happen, but that was the idea at the time. And there would be a division between the party and the state or the party and the economy and to allow businesses to, to flourish, to, to allow them basically to open up the cage and allow that bird to fly free. But it was those questions that would arise. And when you, and this is where your previous questions about Hu Bang. It's, it's in that time period that he's beginning to question even the utility of Marxist-Leninism and their editorials in, in the People's Daily, which is, you know, the mouthpiece of the party about, well, these people, these are older ideas. And, you know, and actually says, well, they need to have new ideas to fit the new situation. So by 1986, you have not only this economic Uncertainty of feeling that those for those stones, but they're also beginning to feel those stones when it came to political changes. And in summer of '86, I remember had a very close friend of mine from who was a Chinese reporter from Taiwan and who came to visit. And some of the discussions he was having in Beijing about democracy, it was really eye-opening. I my my jaw dropped. Now you saw this become uh, to come to a head in 1987 when the demonstrations. We were I was in Shenzhen at the time and watching these demonstrations in Korea, in South Korea, the student demonstrations, and then you start seeing them in um, in China, in certain universities in China, including my university, Shenzhen University. We had a small demonstration promoting the idea of uh, greater political freedom, greater being able to speak. Now that eventually dies down and there's another political campaign that goes on, but this turmoil in 1987-88, so you have a combined both political uncertainty about how far one should reform and then the economic inflation. And at the same, so the political turmoil results in being stepping down as, as uh, the general secretary of the Com- Chinese Communist Party and Zhao Ziyang taking control, I happened to be at a conference in Guangzhou among the, some of the top Chinese economists, all talking about the future of the of the opening strategy in Guangdong and so forth. And we, I was sitting at a table when the when it's happening, and they were all speaking in Mandarin and talking about whether or not the the reforms were going to continue on. And all of a sudden, they—they they I didn't say anything, but all of a sudden they realized I was sitting there and they switched to Cantonese. And my Cantonese is just not good enough to be able to figure out what they were saying. But it was very clear that the there was this uncertainty, this fear that the, that the reforms could be closed down. And that with the opening strategy once again was saved, not in part by Deng Xiaoping, but Zhao Ziyang, would be able to put forward in 1988 the strategy of uh, formalizing the coastal development strategy. And Deng Xiaoping agrees to it all. So while there is retrenchment and Li Peng, who is the new premier, does promote the coastal development strategy, is also promoting a trying to tamp down domestic inflation rates. So by 1989, of course, then uh, all hell breaks loose. And the, of course, Yang then is uh, is wiped from history, kind of like the the, like, his, mere presence, was was completely blotted out. It would be like during the Cultural Revolution, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden uh, they would blot out Deng Xiaoping's pictures, of uh, from uh, any pictures next to, to Deng Xia, uh, to uh, Mao Zedong, but his ideas remained and they would evolve they wouldn't call it coastal development but they would evolve eventually to not just include shanghai but also the whole area along the yangtze river the cities along the yangtze river and then and then expanding investment zones into the interior
0: we've obviously talked a lot about the narratives constructed around this uh, era and different phases that have happened within it. And the natural conclusion to this conversation and to this podcast, given its subject matter, is is January 1992, when Deng Xiaoping goes on his second Southern tour and and his most, the, the, the more famous of the two, when he retraces his steps to a certain extent, goes back to Shenzhen, and then up the coast to Shanghai, which is, as you've alluded to in the intervening years, has started to be opened up, although not with as much haste as as, as some would have liked. I wonder what your feeling is about that as a sort of endpoint for this narrative. Is that a bit artificial? And what would your assessment be of the significance of this, this final act on Deng's part to kind of rail once more against retreat and and argue again that you know China needs to open up more ambitiously how important in your view was was that journey that he made
1: uh, again i think like 1984 1992 revived china's opening strategy there was that period from 1989 to 1992 there with question marks to what degree should china be involved with the international economy should they pursue these decentralization strategies, should they re-centralize control, you know, by allowing these localities greater powers, they had in, engendered also a degree of, of political and social liberalism, which uh, was contrary to the, the interest of the Chinese Communist Party, And so you see this retrenchment, not just with uh, Deng Xiaoping's putting down of the the demonstrators in Tiananmen Square and elsewhere, but also the Yang Xiangkun and his brother Yang Baibing and Li Peng squelching all types of, of, of political and social reforms, bringing the country back to a, a, a more centralized control and while Jiang Zemin was able to push forward Pudong in 1990, that still the question was would China continue to expand or would there actually be more criticisms of the decentralization policies? And so when Deng does this visit in 1994 i I should also say i did uh, i had visited beijing and and in guangzhou in 1990 and there was this feeling of well first off i think that people should realize that china just did not go into a shell there was the joke that at the time that the typhoon was blowing and when the typhoon is blowing taiwanese investors moved Mm. in to china at this time and you so while the foreigners, you know, the students and, and business people all left, it, the Taiwanese, they, they looked at what happened in Tiananmen Square. And while they obviously did not support what happened in uh, Beijing or Shanghai or these other places, they did understand and they also, but they also realized that uh, they wanted to take advantage of the various types of incentives that the Chinese government had given them over a period of time to invest in China, and as investments in getting were getting too expensive in Taiwan, they had begun this transition to embracing after 1987 their their Tongbao, their fellow compatriots in the mainland, instead of calling them the communist criminals, the uh, Gongzei, they would mm. be they would be calling them their compatriots, and they would be investing and. So you see in that period elements where there was fear that maybe there would be a backward movement, but also Mm. you saw hope that investors were still there. There was still an interest, uh, especially in building this greater Chinese economic entity that would include both Hong Kong capital Mm. and Taiwanese Mm. capital. So when Dung comes in 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 1992, I have to say, I I was following things at the time and it was very underplayed that you did not see too many announcements. You know, when Dung went anywhere, usually you would see it everywhere, but there was, there was, those Li Peng and others did not necessarily want to be pushed by Dung in this area. He's an old man, old views, his views had gotten China in trouble. Hmm. So, so in certain ways he had been delegitimated by by. But he his force of will. And also, and this is key, by this time, these policies had empowered the localities, empowered the localities. And uh, I was in Xi'an in the summer of 1984, and I'm sorry, the summer of 1992, and I found this book published uh, in Shenzhen about Deng's trip to the South. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, here's actually, they're publicizing something. But who was publicizing? It wasn't coming out of Beijing. It was coming out of Shenzhen. And I found that book, not in Beijing, but I found it in Xi'an, you know, a province way away, you know, a, a city far away from, from from Shenzhen and Guangzhou. So I think what you see is Deng, maybe he had lost a degree of control to, to Yang Xiangkun and Yang bai Bing and the old elites who, including Li Xianin, I think in many ways blame Deng for, for, for Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang and for their recklessness, because, which could have led to the uh, end of party hegemony. So in 92, Deng is, is working together with the localities and they both revitalize the the outward the decentralization policies and outward oriented development and that's why you see after 92 things just boom and i think it's because that now you have the involvement of the localities and that that's part of the chinese miracle that and it's you know that at least at this time, that the cost of growing China was not just coming from Beijing. I'm saying the, the, the burden of financing China's growth is not just coming from Beijing, that the localities are taking it on for good or for, be- for, for, good or for worse, because that we also see a growth of uh, local debt and so forth. But it was, they all became part of this new movement, which I call you know th- a third way.
0: Yeah and I think it's interesting isn't it that the debates that were happening in, in 92 as you say were sort of couched in an awareness that the yeah, provincial governments local governments in those coastal areas they weren't going to give up some of these some of these things these initiatives that had been put in place, and and obviously Deng goes and he makes his case to those to those people. You know, it's the local politicians that he's he's talking to, and the local people in in, in Guangdong to a great extent. Well, I, I I would highly recommend to listeners that they get hold of a copy of of your book, which is has has just come out. I think in in May. It's called A Third Way. The Origins of China's Current Economic Development Strategies, published by um, Harvard University Press. So all that remains for me to do today is, is to thank uh, you, Chris, for, for taking the time out. And it's been fascinating to talk to you, both in, in terms of the subject matter of your book and also just the fact that you were you know, on the ground for a lot of this period and uh, being able to hear some of your stories fr- from, that, from that decade. So thank you for joining us today and best of luck with the book.
1: And thank you for putting together such a fascinating podcast. Uh, all of these uh, uh, books have been—I've learned quite a bit listening to them—and I hope others uh, will learn more about uh, China's development and give us a better idea how it will, how we should be dealing with it in the future.
0: Well, I hope so. Yeah, and it's been—you know—a a privilege to me, for me to, to speak to people so expert in the field. Yes, yeah, so thank you very much, Chris. Uh, you're welcome.